We're back for another episode of Ad Creative, brought to you by Pencil, everyone's favorite creative AI software. I'm here with Joe Marston. He is the co-founder of not one, but two advertising agencies based out of England. Soar with us and For You Advertising. If you haven't seen Joe around Twitter, I don't really know what you're doing with your life. Um, and him and I have been trying to get this scheduled going on like two months. Um, and I'm happy we're finally doing it. So, Joe, really happy to have you here on Ad Creative with us. I've been looking forward to this like yourself. I think we've had three or four conversations what's out this happened to yeah. <laughs> but yeah really happy to be here thanks for having me and appreciate the shout out just reminded actually i meant to mention the giveaway that i'm happy to, oh, to yeah. do for anyone listening to this any any brand owners doing over you know spending over 10k a month on on ads right now across any platform happy to do some sort of giveaway where we give you guys some free ugc videos um you know however you want to support this show maybe give a retweet yeah. share it when it's live yeah but uh yeah, happy to do that. Just drop me a message on, on Twitter. I'm really excited for this one. So could you give, before we dive into tactics and all the other fun stuff, could you give the listeners just a little background on what Soar With Us and For You do and kind of like where your expertise lies within that? Yeah, sure, man. So when I was at university, uh, I experienced the nine to five rat race and uh, I should have listened to my mom, you know, Hated every single minute of it. She said I'd, I'd have to be my own boss, uh, but I didn't listen to her as, as we all do. So basically was looking for ways to, you know, start a business, an online business without any money because I was, you know, really broke when I was at, when I was at university. So I uh, tried drop shipping, you know, failed miserably. I think I did one of those uh, watch free shipping plus, um, what was it? Yeah, where you, you, you could sell a watch and you just have to pay for the shipping and it just didn't work. You know, I was super novice at that point. And, uh, blew like the 300 pounds, 300 dollars I had and um, was like, right, I need to find something where I actually don't need any money. So a good friend of mine at the time who I'd known since I was 12 years old called Ollie Hudson, which a few, few yeah. of the listeners might know from Twitter as well. Uh, he had had a bit of success in dropshipping. I was generally, you know, into the sales and relationship building side. So I just said, look, mm -hmm. I'll reach out to businesses. We sell them the ads that you can help fulfill. And that was how Soul With Us was born, started off as a Facebook ads agency, very generic, like a lot of other agencies. And that has kind of yeah. evolved over the past three and a half years into what we like to describe as an outsourced CMO. Uh, so we do yeah. everything from paid ads across all the channels that you, you know, that you, you could want, retention strategies, email marketing, SMS marketing, um, everything apart from sort of web dev and, and creative okay. services. And then for you advertising was, was basically our TikTok department that we, you know, two years ago noticed the, the huge rise in uh, hype around TikTok. We decided to, for branding purposes, first mover advantage, create a separate agency, separate team, yeah. and it's evolved into its own thing now. So I'm, I'm kind of managing the biz dev sales, um, sales sort of strategies across both agencies across the two, you know, we, we work very synergistically across both teams right now. Yeah, that's great. What have you, thanks for giving that, and, and you kind of find there's a certain hunger with every person who starts a business from a pretty young age. Um, maybe not even a, a hunger to have a business, but a hunger to solve problems, right? And so sometimes that evolves into building a business. Sometimes like, look, I just know that I want to be my own boss and I'm going to go build something to fulfill that. So love that, love that background. One thing I'm curious about, 
just because we're talking about biz dev and sales, we don't really talk about that this mu- that much. Is um, I do that regularly. Think about it all the time. What have you been noticing? Say, in the last year, have there been different ways that people, as the economies have changed globally, the ways people are looking at purchasing services um, like yours, like an outsourced CMO? Like, what's been kind of the the market trends that you've been seeing through the process of you know trying to close customers? Yeah, good question. Definitely seen an evolution since we started. You know, we were able to sign, I think first year of operating, we signed a multi-seven-figure business through Instagram DMs, which, you know, it seems kind of ridiculous, but when two or three years ago, it was, it was possible to do that, you know, sending the video DM, uh, it just doesn't work anymore. You know, there's a lot of people that have courses and teach these sales and it's just way oversaturated. What we've noticed now, especially probably the past six months is how important content is in and part of the sales process so you know cold email still works cold calling depending on your industry that you're targeting definitely still works instagram dms you know dms across other platforms can work but what i've found is that people business owners are a lot more skeptical now because a lot of people have tried agencies they've been burnt so now they're looking really deep into the agency that they're they're going to work with before they make a decision. So if they see there's LinkedIn content, Twitter content, blogs, podcasts, it's a huge value add. And almost if you don't have any of that, it's a red flag. So if you're in, you know, service-based business and you don't put out content, you're really sort of, you know, being beat by competition. Such an interesting one, because I think it's like content-led growth, right? Um, and that's not what you would think traditionally would work and essentially like it's a B2B service, right? Um, and it's, you have salespeople, they go out, they do outbound, et cetera. Have you, have you experimented at all with kind of saying like, Hey, we're, we are going to have this outbound motion, but we're going to almost lead it with content. Even say, Hey, look, you know, if you don't want to chat with us, at least take this content away and, uh, you know, grow your business either way. Um, like what's been, yeah. A sense like the strategy of using that content is it like, hey, we're just going to put stuff into the world and things will come to us. Or is it something that you guys almost, for lack of a better term, weaponize to, uh, to pull in people? Definitely something we can work on more, but we have used it pretty successfully. So whether that's, yeah. I mean, just a silly example is literally in cold email outreach, referencing a shout out from a client on Twitter. Because a lot of people, you know, can just go to Twitter, look at the client's profile, think, okay, this is a legit business owner. He shouted around mm. on Twitter and that, quite, that was quite a, a useful strategy. Other things yeah. like we've recently been doing a round of webinars with various partners, you know, yeah. just giving away full frameworks and workshops yeah. and audits of how to get results with TikTok, you know, pretty hot topic right now. So yeah. definitely organizing yeah, content. If you want to put it like that, it's a good yeah. way. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, I think... Um, like the best agencies that are either have are on the come up, like you guys are kind of have been around for a while, like common thread, like they really lean, they really lean heavily into this stuff and essentially become a resource. Whether like the way I always position this with people is you just want to be top of mind when they're ready to purchase. Right. So you got to kind of always be at like a low simmer in their mind at all times. And then when it, like when it starts boiling for them, they're like, Oh, okay for you is the place I want to go or pencil is the place I want to go for this specific need that I know that I have, or I have this problem. I remember them. I want to go see how they would, you know, solve it with kind of the way that they, 
you know, position themselves in the world. So I think it's, yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent dead on. So I wanted to transition to, um, we were talking about this and I think that was a, a great kind of tactical piece. I wanted to step back and talk about you a little bit. So you talked about you were in uni and you started this business. What have you dealt with or, or learned say over the last three and a half years, building this, um, building these two businesses with Ollie that essentially allows you to kind of frame up how to, how to do it. So like the, the short, easier way to, uh, position that question is, do you have a framework of how you manage both of these things simultaneously that allows you to kind of keep everything in order? Cause I think people think running one business is hard. Running two is a like, that's a lot, you know? <laughs> so how do you, how yeah. do you think about that? I would say, so for the context, uh, so others is just me and Ollie in terms of, yeah. um, founders, we, we have two of the founders on for your advertising, uh, okay. one of which Great. Liam. Um, was a, an employee at Salt with us who was heading up yeah. TikTok and he's really saw, yeah. you know, yeah, he basically knew the most. So we were like, okay, we want to bring you on and help build this thing. And then we brought on, um, another guy called Lucas as creative director slash co-founder who owns a creative agency. So we basically yeah. only been doing paid acquisition, um, yeah. as a, as a, as offering that we don't really do creative. So we thought we really need to, to bring someone in that, that has that creative yeah. effect uh, and knowledge. So we, we brought in Lucas. So basically the, the point of that is it's pretty much all about team, uh, delegating, you know, obviously as a business owner, co-founder in a startup, you wear many hats, but you need to really delegate as soon as possible, as efficiently as possible. You know, even if somebody can do it something 80% as good as you, it's worth handing off because your time is just the, the most valuable asset. I know that's pretty cliche and you hear that so many times, but it's one thing that even I struggle with still. Um, I actually recently got, uh, you know, an, an assistant and I was just against it for so long because I thought, you know, I don't need an assistant. I'm not like, you know, Logan Roy off succession or anything like that. I just thought, you know, the ego is getting in the way a little bit, but I found myself one day spending like two hours booking flights somewhere. And I was like, I'm spending like the most amount of time on tasks that are actually the least sort of valuable. So just learning to delegate, swallow your pride and, um, really just focusing on finding people that can fill in the gaps that, you know, you, you can't, um, fill in yourself with your own skills, I think was the main thing, um, to, that allowed us to, to build two businesses at a time. I mean, for context, focus is like extremely important. So we didn't start these together, you know, saw with us was already pretty established. We had 20 people at that point before we, we started focusing on for you, you know, we had a really incredible, uh, operations. Um, well, chief operations officer, Matt, who's still with us now. And, um, he was, you know, managing the business incredibly well and still is. So it was almost like we had some, some extra time to do it. We weren't trying to do two things at once, definitely focus on one thing until you get it to a point where it's, you know, somewhat automated. It's, you know, if you take a week off and it runs itself, then that's a good sign. If you take a week off and, you know things start crumbling, then you should just keep focusing on that until you can, you know, get in that position. Um, so I think that's funny. So the first, the last thing you said, I think is, is a, is a good one. Like take a week vacation and just see if the business goes to shit and you'll know if you can actually do something else. Um, I think it's a really good test and there's two portions. You get to take a little break, um, and you get to actually kind of like grade the business a little bit and grade yourself. So you, when you come back to grade yourself, You've at least had a little, little holiday, 
Um, so yeah, I, I love that. I think the thing you said that's super poignant to me, and, and again, uh, I think I'm maybe a little longer in the tooth in life than you, is when I was younger, I didn't understand this idea of team. I wanted to do everything myself and be like the guy, you know? And the older I've got, the more it's, I just want to have people who fill in my gaps that allow me to just operate in my zone of genius. And, you know, obviously zone of excellence, but I don't want to ever live in zone of competence for too long because there are other people who are incredible at what I'm only competent at. And so give yeah. some away because that zone of competence, the more you operate there, the more it degrades your emotional health, which then will flow into the business, right? The more you yeah. have negative things in your head, the more it goes to your people, the more it kind of flows to your customers and like ipso facto, your business gets fucked. Uh, and so yeah. it's kind of like, give more away, have a better perspective on everything and good things will happen. Obviously rigor, blah, 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 you know, standard cliche stuff like you mentioned. But I, I don't think people talk about how important having partners can be for your emotional health so that then you can deliver outsized value to your clients and to yourself simultaneously. Yeah, 100%, yeah. man. Like everyone has their off days. Uh, if, you, if you don't, you know, you know well done. <laughs> but um, <laughs> everyone has their off days and, and you can't avoid that. Don't let that get you down. You know, if you wake up one day yeah. and just feel feel like crap it's just part of yeah. part of life part of entrepreneurship especially with everything that's going yeah. on and if you can kind of become self-aware like that i feel like it it really helped me you know mm. keep going because you know that it's just an off day someone's there to kind of help you out but if you try and just do everything yourself and you, you don't delegate or don't have a partner it's that's yeah. when it becomes a little of an issue so you talked about uh a few like co-founding and i haven't dove deep on this on this pod whatsoever and so i'm curious about this in terms of how you think about it now so three plus years into having co-founded businesses with multiple people if you had to say like okay i have a, a paragraph we can talk about it longer obviously but on how you should choose co-founders like mm -hmm. what would be the way you would think about that because we talk about having co-founders. We talk about a lot of, everyone talks about like, oh, co-founders, oh, you do this, you do that, you work together. No mm -hmm. one really talks about like the actual emotional relationship that goes along with like, hey, look, these people, this village that we have created is on our backs. If it goes well, we get the benefit. If it goes badly, we, we have, we are on the hook for all of the downside. So like, how would you tell someone how would you tell me if I was asking this question? Like, hey man, like, how should I choose a co-founder? I'm trying to start a business. I think first thing's probably trust because, and that's really hard to, to get, right? So like most people won't be as lucky as, as me to have a friend from age 12 that was also as driven as me and wanted to do the same things. Um, but tr you know, trust was the main thing because if you have trust, if you have those off days, you know that someone's going to be there, to, you know, someone's got your back. You know, I know loads of stories of people that have been fucked over, if I could say that, um, by co-founders they didn't really know and they started a business. So just having trust, whether that's just, you know, um, in relationship, like a, just between you, or if you actually make that official with legal documents, like just however you do it, make sure there's trust built in. Um, cause I know there's, there's so many horror stories where that's failed. Then probably mindset, a lot of people they'll try and start a business with a friend. They've got the trust, but maybe the friend isn't really cut out for this sort of thing. 
um, and re be really like savage about that as well. Like um, friends, people always say this, uh, you know, shouldn't, don't go into business with your friends, but if it's the right friend, you know, there's no reason why it couldn't be an amazing yeah. partnership. Um, yeah. But it's got to be, mindset has got to be, it's got to be there. Um, yeah. Then, yeah, I mean, I'd probably say skills, you know, the gap of skills is the next thing. So me and Ollie are both quite different when we started off and there was just two of us, I would do majority of sales. He would do majority of ads because I was shit at ads <laughs> and he, he wasn't very, you know, very confident in sales situations and like conflicts yeah. as much as me. I'm weird. And for some reason like that. Um, yeah. so it worked really well. If you two like really outgoing friends that are really driven and both of you like sales guys probably shouldn't get into like a service based business unless it's like, yeah. you know, sales training or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's I would look for. So that's great. That's great. I think that shared, that shared intensity, um, is something you, you think, but you think about, but you, when it's a friend, you're almost a little more blind to it until you're down the road and you're like, man, I'm working harder on this thing, or I care about this thing more, or just they're not, they, they're not, they can't cut the bacon. I think that's a saying we have here in the States. Like it's not, it's not something that you feel confident that they're going to be able to deliver against. And now there's a whole emotional yeah. entanglement, which is when you say, have someone that you've worked with at um at the original agency and then you say oh well let's have found another one you're like okay well we built trust upon just excellence of work being done so we know that we can do this next thing with you right that's a completely different okay we've worked together we have a working relationship we trust the excellence etc so i think those are those are great in terms of sales this is a really i don't get to talk about sales very often i, I think about it so often uh, like i mentioned what did you learn, say, from the start? Because sometimes there's, there's a huge benefit to being naive about processes and all the kind of standard sales stuff that everyone knows. You start um, doing things completely counterintuitively to what is in the market, and it cuts through. So what have you learned that worked then that you keep to this day? And what have, are things that you've optimized for as you've learned over time? Say, oh, look, maybe my processes weren't right, et cetera. Like, how has your sales process evolved um, over time? Good question. Uh, it really depends like who you're selling to, I've noticed. Mm -hmm. So US is like the US uh, population to sell to is a completely different to the UK. British people are um, quite, uh, you know, tight, tight pockets. So they don't like to spend as much as in the US. Um, so, you know, the, the, hard sell tactics in the U S urgency discounts, you know, um, free stuff to close a deal. That works really well. You try that with a, with a British person, they just kind of know exactly, you know, what you're trying to do yeah. in it. So firstly, know, know your audience. Um, yeah, I would say one thing that, that I've noticed recently, and this, and this comes down to like training salespeople as well, is how you actually become a good salesman depends on your personality type to start with. So a lot of people think that they're good at sales if, if they're good with people and they have a good relationship skills, which it works for like 90% of the sales process. But then when it gets around to the close, this is this, I can't, I don't know the studies, but there's been studies done on this. And if you're more empathetic as a person, it's actually, you're not a great salesman because you struggle yeah. then to almost 
damage the relationship because you're pitching something. Yeah. So I would always look for, or in yourself, if you wanted to decide if you're a good salesperson, you should actually be naturally more, you should actually have like less empathy. So yeah. actually I just am not as empathetic as a lot of people. And I recognize that, yeah. but then, you know, if you ever read a book, um, Chris Voss, the, the FBI negotiator yeah. guy, love it. he love teaches it. tactical empathy. So I really recognize that and thought, well, you know, I can teach myself to, to be empathetic in certain situations. So that's something you know, that we've really incorporated into our sales tactic and, and actually trying to be, you know, less of a hard sell, like structured sales deck, uh, you know, follow this process, say this exact mm -hmm. thing to close the deal and be more conversational and relationship mm -hmm. building, but then use tactical empathy where you need to, to then close yeah. the deal. Um, but yeah, it all starts at just knowing, knowing your, knowing your consumer, knowing your prospects, yeah. I would say. It's funny how kind of foundationally everything is just consumer psychology, um, mm -hmm. and just understanding what they are. So like that, even that call out about us market versus the UK, um, which yeah, we all just sound dumb. Um, like everyone just buys, uh, um, I think is a really, really important one. Um, I always show people like people will tell you how they want to be spoken to. So just listen to them a little bit. And they'll tell you exactly yeah. how you need to communicate with them. And by the way, I'm absolutely the over empathetic salesperson. Um, and every time I kind of go with less empathy, things go well. So you're a hundred percent dead on. I can speak to that experience with a hundred percent certainty that that is how it goes. Um, yeah. what I, what I'm curious about now is, is so saying you've gotten this process down, we talked a little bit about some of the macroeconomic headwinds, like over the last, say six months, have you had mm -hmm. to try any new tactics in terms of sales or has it been like, okay, we, you know, we feel pretty good about this. Um, people are still closing because, because we've essentially built enough, you know, um, community equity and we're putting out enough solid content over the last six months that people come in warm enough that you essentially can just run the pipeline the way that you do already. So yeah, it's, it's weird and I'd probably surprise myself. Uh, it's not changed that much like with all yeah. you know the things going on with the economy. Like yeah, a lot of businesses are still doing really well. I think that the higher yeah. you go and the corporate you go, there's more hesitancy. We worked with quite, quite a few like corporate VC yeah. backed uh, companies and, and brands and they became a lot more cautious, especially going into this year, but you know, you sort of mid range, um, well, even, even smaller range, but still, you know, seven, seven, eight figure econ brands. Yeah. A lot of them from our experience that, you know, they've, they've actually been looking and been more willing to, to buy yeah. than I would say, and I don't know whether that's just like the network effects that we built up over the past few years, but yeah. it's definitely a factor. Um, I think one thing I did want to mention earlier was the importance of yeah networking, especially in person, that's been a big factor in the past 12 months of how we've signed, you know, whales, bigger clients, yeah. better yeah. clients. Um, because I think, especially in like a post COVID world, it's, um, it's even more important. I feel people got yeah. used to not networking and not going to in-person things, but yeah, I think it's, it's so much more productive, even a 10 minute in-person conversation than you know, a loom, uh, sorry, a zoom, a zoom call. So yeah, that's yeah. one area where a lot of people just neglecting. Yeah. I'm it's, it's interesting. So I, I have a really, I don't know, 
interesting perspective is not, but just different perspective a little bit on the in-person is I completely agree with you. What's really fascinating is I have two kids and you start being really selective about like when you can go and where you can go um, to in-person things, but you also enjoy it so much more and you have a really, you you build really deep connections with people. And then like the network effect of that outside is so, so big because you've essentially said like, Hey, look, I don't have time, but I'm going to make time. And that's not a bad thing. It's, it's the truth actually. Um, and so I, I completely agree with you. I am trying to do as much of that, um, of much of that as possible. So we just talked about sales. We talked a little bit about your, your thinking on, on co-founding, et cetera, all this beautiful stuff. One of the things you and I wanted to talk about was UGC. So um, we'll date this podcast because we're talking about it. So uh, Nick Shackerford is saying like UGC is dead, you know, um, shout out Shaq. Um, I don't think that's true. I think, like I said, before we got on there, we've hit the saturation point of bad actors in the, and I, I don't just mean bad actors in the videos, but like bad actors in terms of actually um, sending out content and it's become a saturated space. So it's kind of that, that bell curve of innovation. They're the early, they're the early adopters. And you're like, man, UGC is incredible. It's killing for us. And then, you know, the, the second wave, which is er- people watching early adopters and they still get kind of the, um, the tailwind of it. And then you get to this second part of the slope. And this is kind of the non early adopters, people who are late to the game. They're still getting it, but it's part of the zeitgeist. And then everyone else. What people forget about bell curves of innovation is it's, it's like a wave. It just goes up and it goes down and you just have to, when you're on the downslope, say, okay, how am I going to innovate? Who are the epic operators that I should be working with to deliver against this? And so I'm really curious as to obviously, you know, the perspective you have individually and then as a business on this, because I think I'm, I'm starting to feel that this is something that's happening more and more with brands as they're feeling, you know, the, the sting of not having good UGC in their, uh, in their pipeline. Yeah, yeah, good point. I mean, obviously, there's there's uh, incentive for me to say UGC is is good. I would say you, what you said is, and what Shaq said actually, I'm close with Shaq as well, is uh, is right in some parts, and it's it's definitely it's definitely now you know UGC has stopped working, has become less effective in some aspects because it's almost not UGC. You know, user generated content. You've actually listened to what that means. Most UGC is not actually user generated content. You know, it's people have been paid to yeah. make videos, which yeah. is why now people are starting to really, consumers are really starting to wise up and, and realize that most of these videos are just not actual customers. They're just actors. So, I mean, the, the simple fix is just get people that are either, that are good at acting and can make genuine content. What we do instead though, is we find and place, um, and, and recruit with creators that have such a perfect fit to the brand and to the product that they're going to make videos for that they don't have to act. They don't have to force authenticity. Mm-hmm. Most of them are happy to get the product. So, you know, you can't rely on people being good actors because it's quite difficult. Mm-hmm. So if you can just at least make sure that the creator actually likes the product and the brand, you know, sometimes we try and place creators into with products and brands that they already consume. Yeah. Immediately the, the content is authentic and it is actually UGC or at least it looks 
more more uh, convincing. So we have mm-hmm. kind of three or four pillars really. Uh, it's got to be authentic. It's got to be relatable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got to be conversational. I would say unless mm-hmm. conversational slash raw content, unless mm-hmm. it's the luxury brands, you know, Burberry and those kind mm-hmm. of brands. Yeah, that has to be luxury, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, unless sort of UGC raw content, mm-hmm. but then it has to also be um, entertaining. Um, with you know a slight there's a slight line you have to draw yeah but you know, especially tiktok and a lot of social platforms they are entertainment platforms so yeah yeah if it's not entertaining then most of the time it's it's obviously an ad people are going to skip past this so yeah. i think the main the main paid uh, thing brands and agencies can get from that is just make sure that you're picking the right creator and they can actually relate to the audience and make sure that the creative is authentic but the biggest thing I see is that just creators are bad actors and they're mm. just doing it for money. They're not actually creative and they don't enjoy the work. Uh, and there's been an influx of, of creators. Uh, you know, we turned down probably 80% of creators that were to apply with mm. us because we get hundreds a week. Mm-hmm. Um, so easy to become a UGC creator. It's, it's hardest to find the good ones. So mm. yeah, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. I mean, this is. Essentially, this is kind of what ha- has happened to ecom over the last six to six, 12 to uh, six to 12 months, excuse me. Um, like the bad businesses died because of ads and unit economics and, you know, uh, macroeconomic headwinds. Um, and the good ones have stuck around because they built good businesses, but it's not actually all, like most of them aren't. And so people got into it because it seemed easy, you know, Shopify is easy to plug into, et cetera. Um, I feel the exact same way. I think what's, what's really interesting, two things you said, um, first is entertainment. So I really think about everything in terms of we live in an attention economy now, like how can you keep attention? You draw attention and keep attention and then actualize kind of what that attention is meant to be used for. So in an ad space, like we're in, we're trying to drive revenue right? Or we're trying to drive some sort of intent attention that can hit a revenue generating moment at some point in the future. So either way, we want to be memorable. And so I think what you're saying about the entertainment is lost. And like, again, coming from the AI side of things, we're taking the assets that are being used and essentially just saying, hey, the data says that these kind of things work, we're going to put them together. And what I think is, is hard with that specifically, or the biggest challenge is you're depending on the brand owner and or agency to have a good barometer for what actually is good. And that is completely up to the person. And so you and and your team, you have such a, a wide array of things to choose from, you know, money behind campaigns to understand what's good and what's so like the surface area of what you're able to choose from and how you decide. If you're a brand owner and say it's a side hustle, you're doing 15, 20K a month in ads and like it's, it's, it's starting to become a real business. You've only seen your own business and then what you see online. Like you're, you're essentially coming from the customer. There's nothing terribly scientific about that process. So I think what you said, that stack of four is super, super important to go off of. Um, I think the other, the other portion of that is really make sure that you're trying to, how do I say this right? 
make sure you're trying to deliver value to customers and that the people actually care about that. I think that's, again, kind of from that framework you shared, most of the bad stuff now, which is essentially Pareto principle, 80% of the stuff delivers 20% of the value, 20% of the stuff delivers 80% of the value. Yeah. Really focus on getting the, like the cream of the crop. And if you can't, then you should just be in your ads because you're going to be the only one who has the actual, like absolute deep efficacy and get out of your own comfort zone and do it. Like that's really when I've seen brands say like, man, it's too expensive to get the good ones. It's like, well, then you've got to just be in the ads or I don't know, get your girlfriend to do it, wife, uh, boyfriend, whatever, um, to make sure that you have someone who's going to be there and do what you need them to do. Um, I guess curious for you, because obviously you're working with brands who are doing a certain amount of volume so that they can pay a, a more premium price to work with you and your team. If you were a brand starting out, so let's just say you were there starting drop shipping again, or you had sourced some product, how would you go about getting a creator? What would your process be? Or would you not start with that in the first place? Depends on the brand massively, you know, yeah. depends on, on if that's going to be the, the best starting point. But I would always, you know, I know some people aren't comfortable like doing that, but you, yeah. you can always try and do UGC yourself. It's, um, it's complex, complicated to, to get winning UGC, but sometimes, you know, it can be, it can be quite easy as long as you have enough variations and a volume to test. Um, I know a lot of like, especially dropshippers, uh, people that just started off with a really crappy video and it's just worked really well, they've gone really viral. Yeah. So just kind of swallow your pride. You know, you, if you're in business, you've got to do things that are uncomfortable, start yourself. Um, and then, you know, there's the creator fees right now are just, they're so expensive. Um, it, you know, we have some creators that, that you know, are, are trying to charge 300, 400 a video. Um, we just, we just don't really yeah. accept that, you know, because we can guarantee a lot of work if you're a good creator, yeah. um, unless you're like a, you know, massive influencer, you, you just, it's just so inflated right now because there's so many yeah. people in the market, but, um, yeah. I would say it's the probably the wrong route to go down is to, you know, if you have a thousand dollars to spend that on like five videos, because five videos sometimes isn't enough, you know, you might, you know, they might not actually get a winning yeah. ad from that. So yeah, just use, my you language. know, like use your friends, use, use yeah. your family, try and try and do anything just to get some, some yeah. content out there. Make sure you're following like the right framework. You know, we, yeah. for content, we have 39 UGC frameworks. Yeah. In, our, in our ocean, like, which is what we use as like the company brain. That's 49 yeah. different types of videos. It's 39, sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's so many different things to consider. Um, mm. a lot, just one, one nugget that people might get is they think, okay, UGC, TikTok, trends, trending sounds, dances, like this is the content we need to make. We see that usually like the trending sounds, like the, the funny trends or, mm. um, you know, innuendo trends, they work really well for organic and going viral, but actually driving conversions, um, yeah. not so well. They do work sometimes, mm -hmm. but, you know, I would say a lot of brands come to us and say, oh, we, we've been doing trends for the past three months on TikTok and we've had gone viral like 10 times and we've not seen any direct correlation to, to sales. It's because that's kind of crossing that line of too much entertainment. At the end of the day, you're trying to sell something you need to have. CTA, especially if you're putting ad spend behind it. Um, so just try and make sure that you have like a variety of use trends, but also use, you know, pain point videos, tutorials, customer reviews, 
that kind of stuff. Um, just having variety is the most important thing, I would say, especially when you start out. Yeah, you're speaking my uh, this is this is my language, right? Variety, volume. Uh, we have a we have a three V's framework uh, that we always tell people, which is you want to have a large volume of ads and variation. You want to have a lot of variety within those within that volume, and then you want to be able to test that and ship it with velocity. And the two first two things are I don't say easy, but like you can essentially buy that. The velocity is really predicated on the team and who you're working with. And if your team doesn't have that kind of, I don't know, like desire to go fast, you'll like all the volume in the world won't help you save yourself because you're just like, okay, we only want to test five a week. Well, you have budget to test 25. We should test this to figure out what's the one that's going to scale. And then we iterate based on what we have, say in the 39 frameworks, for instance. Um, I mean, all of, this is a fun one. I say this a lot, but it hasn't changed. So from when our data set was 10 million to now our data set is above $2 billion worth of creative data and spend. It has not changed, which is for every 10 ads you find, you find, or 10 ads you test, you find one winner. How we define a winner is essentially if your baseline is two on ROAS, it performs at like a 2.2 to 2.4. It's like about 10 to 20% above baseline scaling, right? So it holds spend, et cetera. Two to three that are, I call them Pac-Man ads. So like it's right at baseline, right? And it, but it can drive revenue. So it's like, okay, well, we have this thing. We know it's revenue. We, we need the revenue and we're going to, we're going to test into finding that, you know, that unicorn that's going to give us profit this month or the next. And then the rest are just dogs, right? <laughs> and so it's like, how do you cycle through 10 as fast as possible with enough kind of variety and volume within that to, uh, to make sure that you're hitting your core and adjacent markets to be able to deliver value. And I don't think enough people have internalized that and there's like this big war big war that's hyperbolic there is this interesting argument that kind of changes on a dime when brands say oh well we tested this and they'll give you something with an n of one and you're like dude the only people that you should be listening to about the, the variety and volume that they test are agencies and SaaS platforms because they have more visibility to a widespread array of clients. If a, yeah. if a brand, if a brand owner is saying, yeah, we test them this way and it works. It's like, okay, that there's so many different variables in that and caveats that have nothing to do. If I'm selling, I don't know, women's shoes, and then I'm selling dog food. The way you test women's shoes has nothing to do with the way you test new hooks for dog food. It's completely different, right? The customer is completely different. The buying cycle is completely different. And I think we paint too wide of a brush a lot of times with these strategies. There's a bunch of brilliant people sharing this stuff, but I always come back to if your N is N of one, then that just means like on a broad level, these are the things that I think work, but you need to test into them rather than being very you know, prescriptive with this is what works. You should do it. Obviously, that's what gets you likes and follows. But I think talking to someone like you and your team gives you essentially network knowledge is what I call it, right? And yeah. that's kind of a portion of what you're actually buying into when you use a service like yours. Is that something, by the way, you guys sell? Like, hey, look, we see all this stuff. We have way more access to information than you guys do. Because I know I sell it. Um, <laughs> uh, we don't sell like the data, no old reports. We, I mean, we, we've played with the idea of doing that because a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of value in that. Um, but, you know, what we what we use it in the, in the sales process, you know, we have access to all these data points, spending like multiple millions a month. Yeah, 100%. Rating anywhere from like 500 to 1,000 videos a month. Yeah. You know, we... Yeah. 
there's no there's no way a single brand so our, our uh highest output client in terms of videos is doing uh anywhere from 100 we're creating anywhere from 80 to 120 videos a month wow. but you know even them they don't have access to 500 to a thousand videos a day or a month spending yep. two million months on ads you know it, it's yeah. hard to the amount of data as a single brand so yep. yeah we definitely can you know we don't share secrets between each brand because that's oh no 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 to be clear part. if anyone from ftc or legal is listening to this we do not share anything i'm more saying we can see at yeah. large what's working um and have kind of metadata to support a lot of that stuff we can say like look these are the things that you're not doing for instance that one in 10 uh, statistic that hasn't really changed. Similarly, like the best top 10% of brands generally are testing above 25 ads per month. Yeah. Like that is just pretty standard number that has not changed. And the bottom is like sub four, right? So yeah. like five still, you're starting to get good. But if you're testing under four, you're never going to scale. Like it's just not going to happen. And you'll get one ad. How many times have you heard this, by the way? You're going to get one ad and they're going to come to you and say, this one ad worked. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's what we call an anomaly yeah. in, in data science. Uh, and that's not, that is not something that you can depend on. You can't depend on anomalies. There has to be a sort of scientific method to actually getting this, these things done. So, Yeah, I've got a good example of that, actually. Yeah. Uh, give me one sec, sorry. No worries. Just recording this as well, so the yeah. camera went off. Um, yeah, so I've got a good example of that actually. So we've we've spent over half a million pounds on a single TikTok creative for a UK client, UK based yeah. client we work with. And um, you know, I say that to to people on a call, and they say, oh, "Well, why are you selling packet? Well, you know, why are you trying to sell a package and say that I need like twenty or thirty videos a month?" It's like, well, that's one video out of like. 5,000 that's had that result. You can get evergreen videos, but it's rare. Um, but yeah. that's why you need to test right, right? Because you could, you know, this month, next month, whatever, three months down the line, you could have a video that is so good and works so well, which is impossible to predict if that's going to happen. Um, that means you can spend half a million on it and generate, you know, three or four X that in sales. But you need to test to get to that point first. Um, this is a really interesting point that you bring up. How, how do you think people can internalize some of this, I don't know, the wisdom of these are just things that we, like Facebook essentially, let's just use Facebook and TikTok essentially is all the Facebook algorithm engineers that were at Facebook are now at TikTok. So they have built the system to essentially deliver the most value that they can to their customers. And they have the customers. So we have to do what they need for the customers. And I continuously find that people are trying to fit Facebook or TikTok into their business rather than realizing that they just need to fit into TikTok and Meta's business. And it's a weird one because we're talking about attention. People say, oh, TikTok's not working for me. It's like, no, you're not working for TikTok. <laughs> like, don't, don't tell me they don't work for you because they, they don't work for you. You work for them. Because they have the thing that you want that will allow you to survive this month, next month, et cetera, and get an exit, you know, eventually. And so I'm always curious about how 
because I mean, I spend a huge amount of time educating people on essentially just best practices. I hate that Alex from uh, Alex uh, from No Best Practices kill me uh, by saying this, but like, what are the standard operating procedures on platforms? And how do you get people to understand those things? Because I find continuously people are trying to outsmart the systems Leg legitimately. Friends are coming to you and be like, well, if you had this one ad, why didn't you do this? Like, well, you need to test the 30 to find the one, right? Like yeah. that's the entire point of the gambit. They've built the system to deliver that. Um, so how do you, how do you think about educating people to figure that out? Yeah, it comes down to what we call like the just cultural culture of the platform find that cultural fit, like you have to adapt, especially if you're like an Instagram brand or you're only advertising Instagram or Facebook, especially if it's Facebook, you have to adapt quite a lot to TikTok because it's different audience. But you know, the, the main thing I hear, especially from like older founders is, uh, you know, my audience isn't on TikTok. TikTok is for kids. 10% uh, of views on TikTok in the U S are over 50. So your audience is on TikTok, right? You know, it's just, you can't say it isn't on TikTok. Uh, you just haven't been able to create, you know, if you've tried and failed, you haven't been able to create content that resonates with them and still fits within TikTok style content. So I have conversations with brands that, you know, it's the whole, like you said, it's the kind of the pride thing and we don't want to taint our brand image, but people, the brands that do the best. I mean, there's a few I can reel off that are really good. So the, an airline company in the UK called Ryanair. They, their TikTok is hilarious. Uh, Duolingo, I'm sure you've seen those guys are incredible, um, incredible strategy. Scrub Daddy is another good brand that, you know, they do every trend. They don't care if it's, you know, crazy, like sexual innuendo or anything. And they absolutely crush TikTok. Um, but they're slightly more reserved on other platforms because they're, you know, the, the other platforms are more reserved in general, the people that engage with them on Facebook, uh, not the same people that engage them on, on uh, TikTok. So it's just really understanding um, how you can slightly adjust your brand messaging to work on each platform. You know, if you don't want, if you're a super luxury brand, then most of your customers are, you know, 40, 50 plus, um, you know, high income consumers that maybe off put through uh, by some of the trends on TikTok, then TikTok's like probably not the best platform to focus on and that's fine, but you could probably tap into that audience or a different audience if you adapt your strategy to TikTok and the other customers aren't going to see, you know, maybe not in engage with that more risky content. So it's just adapting creative and strategy to each platform and kind of just getting over yourself <laughs> if you think that it's not going to work because it, it will. We've had a lot of clients that have started and then seeing CPAs like 50% cheaper on TikTok when they thought it wasn't their platform. I think this is one of the bigger learnings in general um, about digital marketing is, and just marketing in general, is take your ego out of it, talk to experts that understand and be willing to test. You never know where money and audiences are because we get very siloed and myopic about our thinking, which is, okay, I see this thing. This is where we are. This is the thing that's driving the most value. And I talk about this a lot, where your adjacent audiences or where kind of pockets that you don't know exist, that I can get at a fishing cost that bring kind of the blended myrrh or cacti, whatever that is. Um, and so what you just said is so important. Hey, 
10% of your audience is on, you know, 10% of people over 10% of TikTok's audience are over 50. I had a brand um, that works with us and I said, you know, we were targeting everybody. And then we realized that Gen X was our biggest target audience and biggest consumer. And no one targets them specifically on meta ads. We just went hard at it and they're on Facebook. So placements are actually a little cheaper than they are on Instagram. And so we're actually able to yeah, drop their CPA, um, like you said, by half. And they yeah. still did the same testing regimen. Nothing really changed. The ads were pretty much the same. And it was just a, oh, wow, this is the unlock of saying, okay, I don't, my ego is telling me I want to sell to millennials because that's cool and Gen Z. But really, we're a beauty brand for Gen X, and they actually have more share of wallet than anybody right now because they've made, you know, they're either, you know, in their mid to late 40s and up. Um, and so they've already established themselves in life, life. So they're able to do that. So I think it's a really important one. And probably one of the through lines I think I've taken out of this entire conversation is know thy customer and um, like take ego out of the equation and experiment, right? Those are kind of like the three core pillars that I've taken. And maybe yeah. that's kind of one of the things that, I mean, it feels like that's how you guys have built the business, et cetera. Like no ego, know your customer and just test until you can't test anymore. Yeah. I mean, I kind of, the no ego thing, I just boil it down to, I just, I know shit basically. Yeah. Like, but it's a lot of people and a lot of business owners, um, you know, a few conversations about how people need to kind of realize that. And it's not an insult. It's not a bad thing to think. It actually yeah. helps you improve when you start thinking like that. Yes. Uh, but just realize that you, you kind of know nothing in the grand scheme of things, Yeah. especially when starting out and good point, especially if you're selling a, you know, consumable product or D2C brand, you know, it's, um, it's even harder to predict your consumers and what they're going to, uh, who they're going to be. I know, uh, I won't say the brand name, but, um, he, he thought his consumers were going to be tech savvy, 20 year olds who's selling a, you know, yes. a wallet, uh, wallet kind of techie wallet, a device yeah. and his in customer ended up being, um, mums of the family because they mainly bought gifting for. To their kid, they thought my kid should probably do this, uh, have this product, uh, but he's too stupid to buy it, so I'll buy it for him. And um, <laughs> he had to adjust his whole brand like message over the course of, you know, twelve months. But now he's doing like huge numbers. So, you know, completely opposite to the way that he thought when he started out. But he, you know, swallowed his prize, swallowed his ego, and has now built like a really successful business from that. So, hey man, whatever I, my rule and everything is i don't care where the ideas come from as long as we win it doesn't really matter who scored yes. the goal or the touchdown or whatever if it's mom mom's like works for me right <laughs> yeah, um exactly. so we're running up at uh at time i want to be mindful of it i have a few like closing questions that i always ask and usually people do rapid fire uh everyone who listens to this knows about anti-rapid fire um what do you think has been the single skill that has helped you guys be successful from that comes from you? So best way I say it is like, what is the thing that you're a genius at? And why I asked this question, let me frame it for you is I want people to focus more on what they're great at and make sure that they do that because it will make them better both as a person and as an operator to focus on that, get good at other things, but understand that there are better people than you at those things. And if you lean into the thing that makes you special, like your life will, there's like exponential, 
um, orders of like things will great things will happen for you with in orders of magnitude. So, what's the most special thing about Joe that has helped him, <laughs> helped you with business? I'm gonna kind of flip that a little bit because yeah. um, I realized quite early on that I'm pretty average <laughs> at like a lot of things. Yeah, and I've, a lot of people resonate with that. Yeah. Um, I especially, you know, when I was starting out, I'd look at these people and entrepreneurs and I'd be like, damn, yeah. you know, he had this one thing that like made it easy for him to get into business that I don't have. And I was like, you know, I was pretty average grades, average at sport, like kind of got used to it. Yeah. So I realized when I was like 15, I just need to work harder than like a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, so I think if you're in the same boat as me anyway, if you just kind of don't really have a set skill that you're, you know, generally good at, just realize that if you put more hours in than a lot of people, what, what's the saying? Um, hard work beats talent if talent doesn't work hard. So that, that guiding principle in life, like it's probably the main reason I've managed to, to, to do anything really. But having that kind of self-awareness is also massive. Like essentially what you just said is I have self-awareness and so I know what I need to do to fill the bucket. And so yeah. that's a massive skill that frankly, People think they have, but a lot of people don't have. Um, so I, I see that completely. Next one. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Good question. Um, probably it's, it's quite a, a lot of people know this. I think it's the, the thing is, uh, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett were, were asked to write down one word that uh, you know, to be successful. And they both turned around and wrote down and it was focus. And, um, that is the, something that I still really struggle with. And I know every entrepreneur struggles with, especially when you're starting out like shiny object syndrome, you yeah. know, a phrase, but, um, but it is so important. And I notice, you know, if you just dedicate like a day to one task, you, you can get more done on that single day than, you know, three or four weeks of, of dedicating a couple of hours, you know, a day to it, just. The whole getting in the flow state, focusing on one thing, whether it's micro or macro, that's probably the best advice uh, I've been given. And it's, it's helped me to focus on certain areas, optimize them, move on to something mm -hmm. else. Um, yeah, especially in this sort of like fast moving, like, um, ADHD world that I feel like a lot of yeah. people kind of brand themselves with now incorrectly, um, just, just try and try and focus, try your best to focus. Yeah, man. hundred percent. 100%. I think that's, uh, that's it. Focus. Okay. Yeah. So you gave focus, which might actually dovetail into the final question, which is you have a 22 year old who comes to you and says, Joe, I want to start a business or I want to get into some sort of like opportunity like you've had, or some of your other friends have had, what piece of advice would you give them first? to send them on their way that maybe you didn't have before? I would say, don't listen to people that say you need to follow your passion or you need to have a passion to start a business. Because I, again, uh, going back to the first thing, you know, realized maybe like self-awareness, I don't really have like a passion or at least a passion that I can monetize that easily. Mm. If I were to ask myself what my passion was when I started, it was it was film and like TV, yeah. like the actual complexity of it. But I realized very quickly, okay, I'm probably not going to become rich by becoming like a film director. I'm probably going to fail. Um, I did. Or, 
Oh, nice. <laughs> really, I got told by someone that they're, I think in the UK that the highest unemployment rate degree was film study. So I thought, okay, yeah, that's yeah. not a good route to go down. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I just thought, right, how can I, how can I make, how can I generate cash? How can I actually just get going? Because starting a business and generating cash and getting customers, like you learn so much from that. You can find a passion, like once you kind of sorted your finances out and, and remove yeah. some of the stress of daily life and actually have cash in the bank and then you've got experience and, you know, I'm, I'm getting to that point now where I'm trying to focus more on what I actually enjoy and I found mm -hmm. passions through getting started in business. Yeah. So if yeah. you don't have a passion, don't worry, just try and focus on something that gets you started and you'll probably find yeah. a passion at some point. Yeah. I love that, man. It's, it's so counter, but also so practically smart. I think the, the thing that I've loved through this whole conversation is everything feels practical and what you said <laughs> earlier about like not lack of empathy, but like, I don't come from the empathetic angle. I, I can feel that in the way that you, it's, everything is very systematic in the way that you approach your answers and everything. And so what you've just said at the end, which is passion will only get you so far, but it's kind of like what people say, like love isn't enough, you know, <laughs> it's like you have to build trust and all these other things in a relationship. Starting something is a relationship with yourself, right? So like just loving something that can get destroyed. It's like, do I trust myself? Do I trust this business model? Do I trust all of the people around me that we can make business? Um, I just sounded like my dad make business, uh, that we can, uh, start something that's meaningful. So, um, a really great way to, uh, to close off. So Joe, I know we talked about the offer. We'll get it plugged in at the beginning as well. Um, yeah. everyone should go DM Joe, if you're spending over 10 K on ads to get this with him. Where should they reach out to you? So is Twitter the best place? Yeah, Twitter. It's just my name. Uh, I think it's just Joe J Marston. Yeah, Joe yeah. and then Bill J Marston on Twitter. Yeah, just drop me a DM. I'm happy. You know, three different brands. Let's say give you a couple of free UGC videos if you've uh, if you supported the podcast. Just to say thanks for having me on, Chase. Um, yeah, just drop me a DM and just mention the podcast, and I'll um, yeah, I'll hook hook you guys up. Awesome. Yeah, we'll put we'll put the information in the show notes as well. But Joe, this was incredible. We'll have to do another one where we actually break down ads on on the other show. Um, but this was this was incredible. So much fun. I learned so much. So I really appreciate you sharing everything. And um, yeah, I'm excited for everyone to hear this. It's great. Likewise, man. Thank you so much. Uh, anyone listening, just drop me a message. Time, any questions, and hopefully, coming back one day. <laughs> <laughs>